Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for June 2012. I am writer-critic-temporary Sydney-sider Lee Zachariah, and not with me this time, in fact 941 kilometres away, is... Hi there, I'm a writer-director-braving Melbourne winter right now, and hoping it's sunnier in Sydney, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us today is our very special first international guest... Film critic, hyphen screenwriter, hyphen novelist, hyphen American, uh, C. Robert Cargill. <laughs> not just not just any American, a Texan. A Texan. The American. <laughs> well, I mean, let, let's face it, Texas is is like Australia with better accents. <laughs> <laughs> Can't deny that, actually. Can't deny that. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, fifteen thousand kilometers away. Yes, I have done all the all the Google mapping. So, what's a kilometer? <laughs> oh, okay, I didn't do any conversion, so that that might be a problem. We're going to start by doing uh, by talking about new releases, but we're going to be talking about Australian new releases. Now, we have a very odd uh, release pattern. So, like this last month, we've had uh, The Matrix Reloaded and Finding Nemo, but we've also had Avengers Two. So, it's kind of a mixed bag. <laughs> One film that was released internationally at the same time, Prometheus. I, I actually like Prometheus. Uh, I see a lot of the problems that a lot of folks have been talking about uh, over the past month. But all in all, I, I like what they were doing, I like what they were attempting, and, and I like the experience of it. Uh, although I have only seen it once, so I have not gone through it a second time to try to pick apart all the various uh, complaints that I've, that I've heard. And it's entirely possible I may end up uh, not enjoying it as much the second time around as a you know, oh, yeah, this movie isn't as deep as I thought it was. Mm. But overall, I, I really did enjoy it. I've got to say, I'm very much in line with that. It asks a lot of huge questions and in a lot of ways it can't possibly answer. And so, a lot like Lindelof's Lost, actually. So, it, it, it gets to this point where I think it's... It's it's reaches slightly out of its grasp, so the, you're going to have to expect a cop out to a certain extent. But what the what I loved about the film is, and as you said, Chris, the experience of it. There's only one or two films a year that inspire awe on a physical level with me. Um, like last year, it was Inception and Melancholia, and I got I have to say that Prometheus is the first film this year to do that for me. Like there there were things going on visually. And and seamless visual effects and set design and and the score and 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 the grandiosity of the themes as well. Just kind of there were times you just kind of had to, you know, remember to exhale a little bit. Um, it was really really great in that regard. However, yeah, the themes do cop out. Uh, there's some pretty clunky dialogue here and there. A few of the characters are basically sketches of characters. I, I love rocks, Paul. I love rocks. I know, I know you do because you know you're a geologist. Um, but um, I, all the good stuff pretty much goes into Fassbender's David, who makes a real impression as a as a terrific um, little character. But but you know what? I can't begrudge a film that has. I mean, even if it doesn't tick them all off, I can't begrudge a film that has so many great ideas because so few films are actually willing un, are willing to engage with ideas these days. So I I kind of describe Prometheus as a six out of ten film that gave me an eight out of ten reaction. What did you think, Lee? You know when you're on like a school debate team and they say, here's the topic, and then they decide who's going to be talking in the affirmative or the negative? This is one of those films where I would be happy being on either team. I could strongly make a case no matter which side I was on. Like, I mean, you're right, you know, Fassbender's amazing, but there are also characters and some performances that are kind of terrible. The theme of faith is so clunky and so misjudged 
but at the same time, I, the theme that I picked up on, which was sort of fatherhood and and, and this creation myth, is so brilliant. Uh, I think its biggest problem is how aware it is of its own place in a previous franchise and what looks to be another franchise, like a, a franchise they're building. It's far too aware of, of, of its place in history, and I think that just drags it drags it down a bit. There is that part of me that wished it would just be its own sci-fi film and, and actually have nothing to do with the Alien series. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with that point. That was, I think, I think one of the hardest things about watching that movie the first time is trying to figure out where each piece falls into a puzzle that you've already put together. Yeah. And uh, right. that, that, that we, we feel like we knew the universe as much as we really needed to. And they're like, oh, no, uh, you didn't. But uh, we're not going to tell you up front how this plugs in so that you can just kind of kick back and take in the rest of the ideas. It's the 17th thing you're going to track through this film. And I, and I think that also leads to, to one of the problems that people have, the disconnect, in that they're just trying to track so many things through this movie all at once, you know, in themes and ideas and its place in a mythology, that it just all kind of becomes clustered in the experience that people have. Another sort of geeky property uh, that we've just finally got after, like, Twitter campaigns, Cabin in the Woods. We finally got Cabin in the Woods in cinemas this month, and God, it was worth it. Oh, that movie's good. It works beautifully. I, I have a thing. The, the first two acts in particular I was in love with. Um, it's such a ferociously clever idea to the point where I think, and part of what, I, what sort of slightly kind of rubbed me the wrong way in the, in the, in the final act, not in a, in a strong way, but just in a minor way, is that the concept begins to overtake the characters a little bit because the concept is so all-encompassing and brilliant that the characters are kind of puppets of the scheme. And so, like, in the end, you're not as emotionally invested as you probably want to be, but you're still getting off on how clever and, and kind of brilliant it is. Have you watched it twice yet? I think this and Prometheus are the only films I've seen this month that I, I really want to see a second time. Uh, you got more out of it on the second viewing? It's not that you get more out of it. On the second viewing, you realise the characters you thought were the protagonists aren't the protagonists. Mm. And you see, you watch the entire film from the point of view of the other characters. And you realize that their, their arc is structurally, you have two different horror movies going on at the same time, and one horror movie is in control of the other horror movie. But when you watch it, you're watching for the characters that you're accustomed to watching, and the actual protagonists of the film are the other characters. Wow. And when you watch it through a second time, you're like, holy crap, this... <laughs> This is a completely different film than the first time I watched it. And that's where a few of the a few different problems show up because that horror film and, and what happens to those protagonists ends before the other film. Yeah. And so you end up uh you end up with a film that ends and then you're kind of watching a denouement uh, that uh uh is is feels like it, it just it's like, oh wow, this is what happens after the movie I just watched. It's it's a very strange, very interestingly put together film, but that structurally is is unlike anything else you're, you've ever seen, and needs a second viewing so you can really appreciate the weirdness of the structure. Well, that's really interesting because that's almost the feeling I got, but not like, but not quite consciously knowing why. 
but that was that kind of feeling as as the third act kind of went. I was like, I, I kind of okay, uh, you know, I, I I feel like I've kind of seen enough, and it was still kind of going a little bit, and the actual conscious reason for that could be what you just described. So I can't wait to see it again and see if that's in fact the reason. Yeah, in fact, there's a there's a there's a whole interesting thing. I won't go into any any real spoilers, but there's a whole concept that they discuss when they go into the basement, mm. and then as you're watching the film the second time you see the second version of that scene you see the transgression mm-hmm. and it's and you see that the, the structures mirror one another perfectly it's really it's really fascinating stuff wow i did like seeing it so soon after avengers because one thing joss said about avengers that i, I totally agreed with is that he made it with with the thought that for, uh, the superhero genre had started deconstructing itself before it had really taken off whereas the horror slasher genre is very well worn it's a, it's a well worn path and it's ripe for the deconstruction and so he he's completely taken it apart but managed to make a really interesting horror film and scary horror film at the same time and it also kind of works as the ultimate retcon for every slasher film that has ever happened it kind of, it unifies them in a in a in an inspired way and makes all these horrible films from the past better forget slasher every horror film ever made yeah that's like that's the thing i mean yeah again not wanting to go into anything but yeah it it re, yeah it retcons the horror genre uh, which you is mean, you mean it'll improve phantoms well, it's it's, an, it's not that good but it's it's pretty good <laughs> It kind of it kind of makes you want to go back and watch Phantoms now. That really terrible Ben Affleck movie with the the worms. Yeah, yeah. Uh. <laughs> Just think about it in context. I'm sorry. There is another film that uh, finally came out after. I mean, it had a lengthy delay even before it came out here, but then it, it got delayed again. We finally got Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. What was it shot in like 2006 or something? And I went through all the the Michigas of the 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 post production was fraught and all these arguments about final cut. But this is not the the ultimate cut. This is not the Lonergan cut. But I I think this is almost a perfect film. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. It sounds like a really trite idea, but the idea that everyone is the lead of their own story. I don't think that idea has been executed half as well in anything as it has in this. Yeah, I found this film alternately alternately fr- uh, fascinating and frustrating. It uh, works on a metaphorical level about New York post 9-11. America is almost represented by the Anna Paquin character. She's an emotionally explosive teen, so she spends a lot of the film being incredibly grating. And spending two and a half hours in her headspace is kind of, it's, it's a lot of work to kind of deal with. But I, I find the film's also a little bit digressive. And as you say about the themes, Lee, I think there are themes in this film that, that pay off magnificently and others that don't pay off nearly as well. And you're kind of wondering what they're even doing there. Like the whole Matthew Broderick strain was just bizarre. Like I, he, I thought he was, his performance was wonderful. And the scenes in isolation worked, but they just felt like they were kind of pinned onto the movie. He was making some point over here, and then, oh, hang on, I need to run and do this, and then that's not really... And I I was left kind of wondering what that all meant. That's certainly a holdover from the longer cut, but it's. uh, I still think the scenes with him, particularly the one where they're arguing over what Shakespeare meant, is so crucial to the... uh, to the themes of, you know, communication and of the trivial versus 
what what an, an unseen creator has in store for us. It all, it all ties into that, but I, I do agree that it does feel like there's a better cut in there somewhere. Mm, or, you know, a shorter one. Um, <laughs> but look, I, look, I think the, the film is very elegant, but at times, that's the thing, I, I found at times it was extremely elegant and beautifully modulated and then other times completely overwrought. Um, have you seen this, Chris? I have not. It played here in the States for exactly a week, and it comes out uh, in two weeks on Blu-ray and online. So we there has just simply not been uh, a chance to see it. It was very strange because only a few critics saw it over here and they all went nuts for it and everybody else said, oh, we want to see it and then it was gone. Mm. And it's been, they've been doing small little single night revivals around, around the country, but as, uh, but uh, it hasn't popped up when I've been around. So I have, we just haven't been able to see it. We keep hearing about how great this film is and you just, it's, I'm still what, uh, I think 11 days out from being able to finally see it. Yeah, look, I'm, I mean, even though I'm, I'm, con- I was really mixed on it. I still think it's definitely worth seeing. It's a fascinating work. So, Snow White and the Huntsman uh, came out, and it's barely the fifth adaptation of the Snow White myth we've seen in the last couple of months. Um, <laughs> what, what, what did you think of it, Chris? I think it is this generation's legend. It is. <laughs> It is a film that while you're watching it, uh, as, as a film critic, it is hard to believe that the, you're, you're watching the film you're watching. It's hard to believe that the, it, this is a real movie. Uh, there is a moment in the film that dropped my jaw, and I just I just stared agape at this film, and my wife looked over at me, and she's like, this is really messing with you. And it was the moment that the, the seven dwarves show up. And uh, I don't know what your reaction was with that, but the, the advertising over here did not show anything of the dwarves yeah. at all. And so the minute they show up, you're like, oh, holy crap, it's Ian McShane. Wait, wait, that's Toby Jones. Yeah. Wait, that, that's Nick Frog. Wait, wait, all of these guys, what the, what, what, what is going on here? And it's just, it, it, it takes you, it takes you out of the movie. You're just like staring at it going, I don't know what this is. <laughs> and the movie just gets weirder and weirder and exists in this kind of surreal beautiful state where you're like wow this the, the production design on this and everything about this is is great except at the same time i'm not really invested in what's going on and i see all the weird flaws to it as well and it's just it's a very strange thing that i think that that children and and, and young teens are going to grow up with this being amazed by it and carry it as this fantasy film that they'll talk about for 20 30 years mm. uh and where us adults who are around at the time are like really you're talking about snow white the huntsman that it really wasn't a very good movie. It wasn't bad, but you know, it's just weird. And so it, it, it exists in this weird nebulous place that you can't really strongly dislike it, but it's really hard to like at the same time. Yeah, that sounds like legend. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was I was a bit the same. It was I, I was watching it, going, okay, I can see what you're going for, and it's and you're getting it right. Like it's ticking all the boxes, but. It still it was missing a key ingredient, and I couldn't quite figure out what that was. It's heart. The movie's missing heart. You, 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 we've got a character whose wife has died, and we just don't care about that. And we've got a girl whose dad is dead, uh, who's being hunted down. We just don't care about that. We've got villains we don't really hate all that much that are interesting to watch. And then we've got a kingdom that we're supposed to care about rising up to fight the queen, who we just never give a shit about. 
And and the, the the one moment you really feel something in the film is when, you know, there's the St. Crispin Day speech towards the end where, you know, she's like, who will be my brother? And, the, and all the guys are like... And that's the one time we're like, yeah, no, I, I get this. This is this is cool. But the rest of the movie is just kind of pretty. Well, maybe, maybe that's a really clever metaphor because the original uh, Snow White legend, the Huntsman is sent to cut out Snow White's heart and returns without the heart. So maybe the film not having any heart, <laughs> maybe it's just really meta. <laughs> it's super meta. It occurs to me we've not really touched on uh, one of the major aspects of um, movie fandom and, and movie culture these days, uh, particularly when it comes to Hollywood, and that's movie marketing. Um, these days it seems to be a kind of a wall-to-wall assault like never before. Um, I guess it, it's sort of been gradually growing over the years, but now it, it's, it seems to have reached kind of crisis point in terms of, like, now we don't just get trailers we don't just get teasers. We get teaser trailers for trailers. We get teaser trailers for teasers. We get ten, like literally in the last month, we've had a ten-second teaser trailer to the tri- the new Twilight film trailer. And um, by the same token, we're getting really innovative movie marketing as well. Like in terms of Prometheus, we got all those great viral videos that happen that don't show footage from the film at all, but illustrate the world the film exists within like we get ads for the david android we get um the young guy pierce um uh peter whalen doing his ted talk so in some ways it's becoming more innovative but mostly it's just this kind of completely spoiler rife kind of yeah um uh, marketing assault and i was just wondering because we we uh, so many films these days seem to kind of disappoint people is it because of the marketing are is the marketing we, the assault of marketing we're getting these days deflating expectations is it too much is it spoiling films well it's it's an incredibly complicated uh, uh problem uh, that it's very easy to look at the marketing and kind of blame the marketing for what's going on, but the marketing is a reaction to how we, as an audience, has, uh, as an audience, have become. Uh, what the marketing is is the marketing is trying to grab your attention and uh, demand immediacy, because we've become an audience that. Uh, Let's face it, and, and I, I guarantee you all three of us are guilty of this. Everyone listening to this is guilty of this. But how many times has it come that you know you miss a screening or you miss seeing a movie on Friday night, and then it's Monday, Tuesday, the next week, and it's like, hey, do you want to see that new movie? You And you instantly go, ah, it came out last week. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll catch it on video. And there is this weird feeling that we, we've become a I want it now, I want it this minute culture that if we don't get it right now, then it's kind of old hat. And even though we're talking about a matter of 100 hours between when the movie was released and when we finally can get around to watching it, we're kind of like, ah, I missed my window of being excited about it. And so what marketing is trying to do is capture that and build that because what we find is that opening weekend, opening weekend used to just be a signifier of how well a movie might do. And then by the year 2000, opening weekend accounted for one-third of the box office. Now opening weekend accounts for half of the box office. Mm -hmm. So you are going to generally make 
about as you you know double the money that you make on opening weekend. So that opening weekend is essential, and you need to cram as many people into that movie theater as you can on opening weekend, or else you're not you, you may not profit on your film. So. How do we – the question is, is how do we get people super excited about going to see something? And that we uh, – everything in Hollywood has has revolved around that idea. What we've ended up with is we end up with people trying to make sequels, trying to make prequels, trying to make uh, remakes of films because that way audience members already know what they're getting. Uh, you don't have to convince them uh, that they're going to see something new. And if you can't do that, then what you have to do is you have to just spam the crap out of them with advertising. And you have to try to sometimes even spoil the film with advertising so that the audience knows what they're seeing so they know what they're supposed to be excited for. That last bit is such a bizarre concept to me. That you want these people want the film spoiled so they know what they're getting. Like, what is this thing where nobody wants to be surprised? I mean, I mean, I I, I can understand like this. This film has the look and feel and is kind of like that other film you saw. But then going beyond that and going and here's the way it ends is just bizarre. Like, I can understand audiences going to something because it looks and seems to taste like something they've liked before. But then wanting the entire experience delivered to them beforehand just seems goofy to me. We, we consume uh, films a lot differently to the general public. Like, we, the three of us live movies. And so when they say there's going to be a new Spider-Man film, no matter what, we already know we're going to go see it. Like, we're sold. And, and we sort of consume everything that the studios put online and go, why are you, why are you spoiled? We're, we're already going to go see it. For the general public, they may or may not see a film on Friday night. It may or may not be Spider-Man and so and there's so much that's now competing for the audience's attention that I, I guess the the sheer amount of marketing is there to make it this all pervasive thing in people's minds so they're almost going automatically like oh I have to see Spider-Man it's everywhere it's now in my head rather than just being kind of vaguely aware of it well you know it, it, addressing that um, when I was uh, when I was making Sinister uh, I spent a lot of time you know, picking Jason Blum's head, uh, uh, brain because because uh, the guy's just he's a really awesome producer, really super smart guy, and uh, we were talking about the marketing and how we were thinking about marketing Sinister, and what he told me just kind of blew my mind, and it had never really dawned on me, and uh, you know the Paranormal Activity movies all did very very well, they 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 record breakingly well, in fact. And he said, he told me, Paranormal Activity 1 and Paranormal Activity 2, the trailers for both of those movies had every single scare in the movie in those trailers. They were all there. But the audience forgot them the minute they walked into the theater because the audience was still scared, still loved the movie, and still ended up walking out talking about how scared they were, even though anyone who had seen the trailer had already seen every single scare that was there. And... The majority of audiences see these trailers and then forget most of those things. Us film fans, we don't. I mean, we're 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 hardcore cinephiles. I mean, you and I, uh, we we just sat down and had a, a conversation about a movie that I haven't seen in four months. You know, I saw I saw Cabin in the Woods ages ago, and here we are still talking about it uh, as if it's fresh in our minds because that's what we do. But most audiences. They watch a movie and they forget it. They they watch. There, there are people who you'll talk to who uh, 
you'll say, hey, have you seen that movie? And they'll be, oh, no, I've never seen it. And you start talking about it, and you'll have a conversation for five minutes before they go, oh, yeah, no, wait a second, I've seen that movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I've totally seen that film. But they, you just explained everything else to them, and it never dawned on them because they just think about films in a different way. And marketing isn't made for us. As, as you mentioned, marketing is made for the average cinema-goer to try to get them into a theater. Yeah, I guess I, I guess I take my logic to something like books. Um, I I'm not I'm much to my eternal chagrin. I'm not a big reader. I wish I was more of a reader. And if somebody recommended a book to me, I wouldn't want them to tell tell me the ending. I, I'd kind of want you know. But if you tell me, hey, this book is just this book's a lot like The Shining. It's I'm interested. I'll read that. But if you tell me, oh, it's a lot like The Shining and it ends like this. Then I'm going to be pretty pissed off, and I'm not going to read the book. I know. I actually know a lot of people who are who are quite avid readers who do flick to the ending. The first thing they do is read the last couple of pages to see if they're going to like how it ends. Actually, I live with I live with someone that does. Oh, really? that. <laughs> they just did. Just it was either earlier this year or late last year. Someone released a study. They did a psychological study in which they sat a bunch of readers down with uh, these stories. And they, they broke them off into different groups. And one group they told the ending to and then had them read the story. And another group they didn't tell the ending to, but they described the story, to the basic story to them and had them read it. And then they had another group where they just sat them down and had them read the story. And then they rated the story on how much they liked it. And surprisingly, the thing that really blew everybody's mind was the fact that the, 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 the test group that was told the ending liked the story more knowing what it was, where the story was headed, than either of the other test groups. We, we actually discussed that study uh, a month or two back when we were talking about spoilers, and I, I found it very interesting, but I do have a lot of problems with that study because it was quite, it, it was quite unscientific, and I, I do think there are a lot of factors that they didn't take into account. It still is interesting that they got that result, nonetheless. Well, thanks for letting me tell the entire thing since you already discussed <laughs> <laughs> It's hey, 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 our listeners are just like the general movie going audience. They need to hear things over and over again till it gets drilled into their head. And plus, you know, you do have the better accent. We just enjoy listening to it. That's true. <laughs> All right, Mr. Cargill, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month. Uh, I have picked Michael Bay. Now, director, producer extraordinaire. <laughs> now, I, everyone in our audience is probably asking this question, so I'm going to vocalize it now. Why? Well, you know what? I'm I'm a big Michael Bay fan, and um, Michael Bay is a, a really fascinating director in that he is one of the most openly despised directors among cinemaphiles. He's also the single most ripped off director working today. There's no director that has been ripped off visu uh, visually as Bay has. His style has completely affected every uh, uh, the way we look at, at big films and action films in this day and age. And uh, there's, there's a number of things in the industry that have actually uh, evolved out of his films. For example... Um, in, in the industry, when you're shooting uh, a, a scene and you have people walking and you shoot it in slow motion, it's called an Armageddon shot. 
Didn't didn't it used to be called a right stuff shot? You took the words right out of my mouth, Lee. It's exactly Uh, what I was going to say. Yes, but now it's called an Armageddon shot because the difference between the right stuff and Armageddon is Michael Bay was the guy that said, let's shoot it at 300 frames per second. Right. And that he he's the guy who pioneered that let's just blow through film and let's create this super slick slow motion look that has no stutter to it and and everybody from that point on they went that way whenever you see a slow motion with stutter these days it looks off it looks weird it's like why would you why, why would you have that stutter why would why wouldn't you just shoot it much slower and he was he was really the guy that that pushed that and pushed that whole look um, he's he's the ma- he's he's the guy who said 300 frames per second. That's what we're shooting, and that's how we shoot action. Now. I've always found that he's kind of Michael Bay's visual style. At least has always been this combination of Tony Scott meets John Woo turned up to 15. Uh, with with a little bit of Frankenheimer thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe no, uh, liter- literally in his DNA, perhaps. Or that was that officially disproven. I don't. No, I've never heard that it was disproven, but uh, um, it, it certainly still floats around. Mm. So, hey, and there's a rumor that John Frankenheimer is Michael Bay's father. Is that what yep. you're getting from this? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, because his parents, uh, um, he was adopted. And, um, yeah, his uh, biological parents have never been known. And the rumor is it was because he was born in Los Angeles. And, and, yeah, and the rumor is that it's John Frankenheimer. Wow. Stylistically, he also, you know, there's a little, there's a little dad thrown in there, you know. <laughs> Lots of films about daddy issues, and you know, it's who knows. Yeah. Now, but no, I, I find him as a filmmaker, I find him fascinating because uh, I, I love his work. He is not a great storyteller. He is. If you want character development, if you want uh, uh, themes. Uh, he's not the guy you go to. Uh, people who walk into a uh, uh, into a Michael Bay film and go, "Man, I hope this is a deep, introspective uh, look into the human psyche." You have walked into the wrong theater. Uh, he is the guy you go to watch blow shit up better than anyone else in the world blows shit up, and he does it. He he is a master of mayhem and carnage. Unlike any other director, there are other directors that grasp at that level of carnage that never quite get it the way he does because he is just – there's something about just that level of just madness that is in his – you know, to, to, to go back to the phrase, in his DNA that he, he just sees things on such a huge level and outdoes everybody. It's, it's weird. As a director, I made that Scott Wu comparison. As a producer and I guess his – the directorial, as you say, he love he just he's this, this kind of obsession with carnage on an epic scale. He's almost to me like the spiritual stepchild, or the spiritual child of Cecil B. DeMille and Herschel Gordon Lewis. Yeah, it's yeah, I, can, I can definitely see that. It's like this complete like everything's bigger than anybody else, but there's this complete crass, you know, schlockmeister. I just want to see things fucked up. Um, that, that Herschel Gordon-Lewis has, and that, that's not motivated by anything but of its own ends. Yeah, yeah, and that, that he has the same themes that he plays with over and over again, just like they did. Um, 
that that it's you know you can you when you pop in one of his movies you know you're watching one of his movies just like you're watching one of theirs. There's nobody makes a horror film like Herschel Gordon Lewis, even though he's got imitators, and that's exactly like Michael Bay. Mm. Mm. He was very, very assured right right out of the gate. I mean, this is – I'm almost reluctant to say it's one of the best first films I, I, I've seen, but 95's Bad Boys is, in terms of a first film, is really cohesive and really kind of impressive. Well, particularly visually. Like, I remember seeing it at the time when I was 20 and thinking, man, I would love to shoot something that looks like this. Like, this, that, oh, those... I almost think it's funny, because I've got certain portions of, of, of Bay's career that I think are the best things he's done. And the opening credits of Bad Boys is, one of the, I think, one of the three best things he's ever directed. Like, just those shots of Miami from the plane going over the Miami sign. It's all the shots of the town with that great... Uh, of the city with that great Mark Mancina score in the background is one of my favourite things Michael Bay's ever done. And and how many times have we seen people ape, ape that opening? I mean that yeah. that became that's how you introduce a city in movies now. And and that that shot sequence, you weren't alone. Everybody else is like it was because that that's the thing that uh, just amazes me about him is you know in in '94 every single filmmaker in the world wanted to to write Quentin Tarantino dialogue, but they wanted to shoot their movies like Michael Bay, mm-hmm. and and that led to everything we got. That wasn't straight up indie uh, in the late '90s. I mean, it was just there's there's so many clones of what that was, and, and that shot, that shot's fantastic. That that whole or that that whole sequence is just amazing, and in, in how it looks, and that whole movie feels that way. It's so so slick and raw, and and uh, and it's just like it's it's almost like it's doused in Axe body spray. It's, it's <laughs> there's there's just a it's it's just the most blatantly macho, slick, douchey, yet awesome thing, you know? And it just, yeah, it was really kind of mind-blowing. It was, we hadn't seen movies like that before. We'd seen a video like that. I mean, but even before I wanted to, before we mentioned that, I wanted to mention, you know, the work that led to Bad Boys. Right. Uh, are you, uh, you know, of course he did, uh, you know, Meatloaf's, uh, the infamous uh, I Would Do Anything for Love. He was also the guy that introduced us to Chrissy Amphlett's gigantic cleavage in the Divinals I Touch Myself film clip. Yes, yes he is. And and you can see from that, you know, all of that early stuff, you know, from, from you know, the Divinals video to, to the Meatloaf video to, to the Got Milk car accident ad, like everything he does came together in, that's what he does. He shoots women that look better than any other women in the world and he shoots, you know, action better than anyone else does in the world and and he, he, he shoots better car chases than anyone has ever made and, and that's what he does. And that's what uh, he's obsessed with. And he's continued that through the entirety of his coming up on 20 year career. He's a guy who is famous for excess and who has who, built that into every film he's made since day one. But I, I almost think that The Rock in 96 is the last time we saw him temper those excesses. There are still quiet moments in that film. And I kind of think that that was sort of the last time we saw that in a Michael Bay film. I. I think that has a lot to do with the fact that that was his second film and that was still during the era when producers could say, hey, Michael, maybe you should do this. And after he had two hit films and he's like, look, I'm making Armageddon and this is how it's going to be. Mm. And and that's where I think part of the disconnect starts to happen because I think the great action films that certainly I love, things like Die Hard and 
the great escape and speed and various other things like the action is is great but it's always motivated there's always a character and a plot motivation whereas whereas bay is completely interested in epic carnage for epic carnage's sake and so you've got these sequences that just kind of run on and on and as we discuss the later films um, I'm sure we'll go into this in more depth. But that's one of the things that begins to alienate um, things with Bay. Because I would argue that Bad Boys 2 has every bit the same kind of humor and character that, that the original Bad Boys has. I don't, I, I, in fact, I feel that Bad Boys 2 is the superior film to Bad Boys. Um, I also feel that there's some great human moments in the island. Um, but that the island ultimately is what we'll, we'll get to that soon, but the island is ultimately a movie that gets, that gets crushed by the Bayisms in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I think that it's still there, but that's not as much his focus as, as the action is. Uh, but he does, you know, he makes you care about the action and he makes you care about the characters, but not in the sense that cinemaphiles really identify with because there's not a lot of depth. It's just, you know, oh my God, somebody's taking the hot girl. Slow motion pan around as they go, we got to go against the motherfucker. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's let's go save the hot piece of ass. And, you know, that relates to a general audience that is like, yes, please go save Megan Fox because that is a perfect ass. And, you know, the, you know, us critics are sitting there going, really? That's the motivation here? We're saving the hot piece of ass? Shut up! This movie's good! Um... <laughs> But I think he's he's just he's keying into a very different kind of a very base primal emotion and attitude in his characters. It's very easy to grasp, so easy that we kind of ignore it because there's no depth to it. Yeah, it's just so damn shallow. I like to call it teenage. Teenage. Yeah, it's very teenage sentiment, very teenage point of view, uh, very teenage yeah. motivation. And he does kind of own that. He does say, "What the hell's wrong with making films for twelve-year-olds?" I, I, I was twelve once, and look, I do, I do appreciate that sentiment. There's nothing wrong with that. I still think twelve-year-olds can still watch good films. But um, oh, is is ninety-eights Armageddon? Is that the point at which he became a brand name? Because there is a point at which he entered public consciousness and people make Michael Bay jokes in, you know, in main, in the mainstream and everyone gets it. And I'm trying to work out at what point that happened. And it had to be around Armageddon. Armageddon was the point at which he became relevant. I, I still remember the entertainment weekly issue in which, you know, you open up halfway into the issue and there's a big picture of this, the face of this good looking guy you've never seen before. And it, the question is, is Michael Bay the devil? <laughs> and that was the headline yes. of the story. And it's like, who is Michael Bay? I don't, oh, Armageddon, no, I, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, I love The Rock. Oh, Bad Boys was cool. Yeah, no, who is this guy? Uh, it was the, the, that was the moment he entered the consciousness. The moment he became the joke was Pearl Harbor. And Pearl Harbor was the moment that the, that was the schism to which uh, his reach had, over, uh, has, had exceeded his grasp. And at that point, now he was fair game because he yeah. tried to be taken seriously as a filmmaker and didn't have the chops for it. So, yes, now we can make fun of him. There's also a question in Pearl Harbor when I was watching it. I couldn't figure out if it was the most earnest film I'd ever seen or the most cynical one. And I still don't know. I can't figure that out either. You know, it's because it's there's 
there's so much weirdness to it and uh and there's a rated r cut to that movie that that you you actually have to track down to find Mm. and even that's not a full cut of what he had intended it's a very strange movie i i feel almost like what he wanted to do was undercut by what he wanted to be james cameron and he wanted to out Cameron Cameron and right. make his Titanic. It definitely had that feel about it at the time, uh, even from the trailers and so forth. It looked like it was it was shooting for that Titanic imprimatur, and boy, did it miss. <laughs> right. Well, well, yeah, because Michael Bay didn't understand what made Titanic Titanic, hmm. just in the same way that so many people don't understand what makes a Michael Bay movie a Michael Bay movie. Uh, hmm. You know, a Michael hmm. Bay movie isn't you know just shooting really slick uh, looking action. There's there's a whole look and feel and there's a certain weight to it in in how he carries his shallowness as if it's as if it's serious does he actually storyboard his films or does he just masturbate into the american flag and and show that to his cinematographer and go do this there's a theme that begins in armageddon which is um it's kind of this notion that a lot of his characters in his films are just straight up idiotic like, <laughs> just, like, straight up, just completely impulsive. Again, act like teenagers. Like, what is Bruce Willis doing shooting at Ben Affleck on, I know, a fucking oil rig? Like, just shooting bullets at him. It's like threatening to blow the whole damn thing up because he slept with his daughter. And then, you know, this whole notion of the astronauts can't save the world, the drillers have to. And on one hand, it's this kind of nice tip of the hat to the working class. But on the other hand, and as you see more of his movies, you kind of get it's It's more this kind of the stupid and impulsive will inherit the Earth. Are you guys familiar with the, the Church of the Subgenius? No. Uh, okay, it's it, it, Church of the Subgenius just... Uh, long story short, it's a it's a great ca- counterculture movement that kind of makes fun of religion and uh, throws together some Nietzsche philosophy and some some interesting uh, 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 weird quirks together into a big kind of gag religion, uh, and it has a bunch of interesting sayings that are surprisingly true uh, but funny at the same time. And and one of uh, one of their most important tenets is if you act like a dumb shit, they'll treat you like an equal. And it's, it's this, this idea that if you act stupid, other people will feel much more comfortable around you and like you're one of them. And I feel that that's how Bay approaches his protagonist in that I'm trying to appeal to the salt of the earth. So I'm going to make a guy who's essentially going to be a superhero. He's going to be able to screw any woman he wants. Uh, he's going to be able to drive the greatest cars in the world. He's going to dodge every bullet that gets you know shot at him. So in order to relate to the common man, he's also going to kind of be a dumb fuck. But he also has trouble with that uh, with that idea because, particularly with um, with Sam Witwicky and the Transformers trilogy, they keep trying to sell him as this working class kid who doesn't have any money and he's really poor. But his family is really, really well off. Like it's a beautiful house they live in, and they all they seem to have enough money for the things that they want. But he just sort of keeps giving lip service to the idea that he's working class. And and then there's I, I, and then there's the inference in the third one that's one of the most implausible things in the whole three movies is they sent him to an Ivy League college. Mm. Well, that's that's a that's a running thing that we joke about over here that we call Spielberbia, <laughs> and it's it's that notion of this the the suburbs being this perfect idyllic. Everyone actually has a much bigger house than anyone in the suburbs really has. Uh, Spielberg is infamous for that because Spielberg has just been so detached from 
from you know the real world for so long and has been living in the cinema world for so long that that that's you know that that image that he kind of created in the 80s with et and and uh and poltergeist is something he's always kind of carried through his films and that's something that really didn't show up in in bay's stuff until uh he started wearing working with spielberg mm. And, and I really feel that the, the, the problems with Sam Wickwicky uh, stem from Spielberg's influence on, on it, that it's like, no, 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 this is the type of character that everyone will relate to, and it really isn't. Uh, although I will say that in Bad Boys 2, they do, you know, he, the cop has a much bigger house than a cop would ever yes. have. Even the Martin Lawrence character. The Martin Lawrence character has this giant house yeah, as well. Yeah, the one who's always complaining about not having any money. Look at his house on the waterfront. It's beautiful. <laughs> Well, let's talk about Bad Boys 2, shall we? Um, I, we shall. Can, can, I, can I say I, I do actually like Excess. It, uh, like I love Speed Racer. I have an unjustifiable soft spot for McGee. I do actually like Excess in cinema. But uh, Bad Boys 2 is definitely that divisive film that people either loved or hated. I was absolutely on the hate side of it. Uh, I, I loathed, loathed this film. I didn't hate it as much when I rewatched it the other day, doing something I swore I would never do. But certainly at the time, I found it just so uh, repellent in in really every possible way. I remember very clearly that you you were on the other camp. You when we were both writing for Ain't It Cool, I remember your review was you you loved it. You loved it to death. I do. I love the hell out of that retarded thing. It, and I'm glad you said the word retarded, though. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, conceptual. I mean, the, the, the thing is, is Bad Boys 2 is the film that you can you can pull that film out and say every everything that is right and wrong about Michael Bay is here. It is on display. Uh, one way or the other, it's all here. And because there's... There are some moments of brilliant excess in that. Uh, it has what I hold to be the greatest car chase ever filmed. I don't think there's a better car chase on film than uh, um, than the one up on the Miami freeway. I mean, every time I've seen that movie, I saw that movie three times in a theater, every time that boat fell off uh, and, and comes up at the screen, everyone in the audience ducks. <laughs> they just... Everybody ducks. They're so involved in that car chase, and that car chase is just so, just so iconic of what everything Bay does. And then he's got that great chase later. It's like, well, how do you top that? Well, we're going to be chasing, you know, a mortuary truck throwing bodies out the back, and a head's going to pop off when the when the body gets run over. And he and and then it's like, well, how are you going to top that? Well, we're going to take you know uh, a car and we're going to drive it through a shanty town and just tear up a shanty. And he keeps ratcheting it up and. And, and and making keeping it interesting the whole time, and at the same time, there's some really goofy character stuff in that movie. I mean, there's just oh yeah, uh, and and he's got the perfect Michael Bay moment, the moment where it's like, you know what, I've I've done this so many times, I don't even need any dialogue to it. Where you know they realize that the girl's been kidnapped, and uh, they're gonna you know they need to go into Cuba to get her, and all the other you know SWAT guys just kind of stroll in, and you know these they, they, we're all going. That's that's the whole point. Yeah, my favorite line in that film is this shit just got real because the the woman in danger has a personal connection to them both. Never mind all the people who have died beforehand or being kidnapped or whatever. This shit just got real. That's the thing. Like, there's such a disconnection from anything human in this film that it's 
impressive on some level, uh, <laughs> but but repellent on most. Like, for some reason, they're just psychos that want to shoot people, and they just spend the film yelling at one another, and and then and just with no regard for anything, but you know, wrecking as much things and killing as many people as possible in order to solve their race. And it's almost like a video game in that regard. And the stuff is spectacularly directed, but it just goes on and on and on and on and 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 for no reason. Like, like I think that there comes a point where fairly early in Michael Bay's films, like it's probably around the Armageddon point, really, that you start asking serious questions of why things are happening. You know, it's like, why? But why not just do that? Nah, fuck it, because this gets me to where I want to go, which is. You know, driving through a shanty town for twenty minutes. And this, this whole, the, all of these questions lead me back to the initial question when, when, when I first mentioned this, when you were like, "Why do you want to talk about <laughs> Michael Bay?" This is why, right? <laughs> because this guy, he's got an entire career that is filled with these amazing. What was he thinking? And yet, at the same time, I can't take my eyes off it while he does. And and that's the thing is as much as as much as you hate the film, it, do you, did you get any enjoyment out of it watching it a second time? Little, little bit. Um, very, very little. I don't know. See, that's, that's the thing. The first time I saw it in a cinema, I was incredibly offended by it. But the second time I saw it just last week, I wasn't nearly as offended, but I, I suddenly realized how dull it seemed. Like, I just, I guess if you, the, the lack of modulation bothered me. It's the fact that it starts off cranked to 15 and ends cranked to 15. And there's, there's very little to no modulation at all. So you end up, you're just kind of pummeled for two and a half hours. And you can only take that for so long before you begin to sort of go, okay, I need some steaks or I'm out. Which is, is things like, the the rock does a lot better. But the rock is far and away his best film. Yeah, I yep. mean, I, I enjoy a lot of his films, but the rock as a film, just from beginning to end, I mean, it's uh, uh, you know what? I could tell this story. Um, this is uh, the rock was out when I was back in my dating uh, dating days, and uh, I had not settled down yet, and I took three different girls to go see the rock, um, and. Each one of them attacked me when I got home. It was just it, it, that's why I took the second one. You know, I took the first one to see the movie, and, was, and she, she pounces on me. It's like, wow, I was I saw a good movie, and I kind of got later. That's amazing. And then uh, you know, I go out with another girl the next week, and she's like, oh, what do you want to see? And she's like, oh, I kind of want to see the rock. It's like, hey, I've seen that. Hey, let's give it a shot. And and sure enough, she attacks me, and then. By, by that time, I'm like, well, next girl I go out with, I'm taking her to see The Rock. And sure enough, third time. Every, every guy who just suffered through the notebook is crying right now. <laughs> yeah, they, they did not learn that Michael Bay had already created the film to get you late. Yeah. That, that it's that it's that scene with her and the pigtails on the on the chair and, you know, that whole seduction scene and throwing a little bit of Sean Connery on her shuck-shushed. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and, you know, then, you know, put some stakes where the world is, you know, uh, you know, where, where, you know, the girl is going to die if you don't stop these missiles. And, and all of a sudden you, you've got a movie where, you know, you're getting late. Wow. That's well, that's, I, I did not know he had that effect. Well, he certainly has the opposite effect now. Most women I know who <laughs> see his films are repulsed by them. There's, there's one thing that I want to talk about, because um, you're talking about the, the action stage in Bad Boys too, and I'll... I'll grant you that even if I don't enjoy it. Um, from the island through to Transformers, there's one thing I find odd, which is I actually find a lot of his action quite inept from that point on. I, I, I get no sense of scope or scale, particularly in Transformers. The, the Transformers, it's like an, the effect of somebody waving streamers or ribbons in your face. 
it's uh, big CGI robots beating each other up. I just find it dull, and I know these are incredibly successful films, but I find it odd that he is actually the director at the moment who I consider least credible with action, and it's mostly because of Transformers. Well, I mean, I, 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 I don't feel that myself. Mm. Uh, I've enjoyed the action in, uh, in the, the first and the third movie. Um, but particularly the third film, I love the last hour of that, you know, in Chicago where you have this destroyed city and you just have, you know, this, this, you know, hardcore just action film of, of these, you know, special forces guy and these, uh, and transformers going into an occupied city and getting blown to crap and buildings falling all over the place. And, uh, I feel, I feel that his problem may have been the fact that, you know, he's trying to one up himself and mm. you can't like how how do you top the best car chase ever made and his answer is well let's knock a building over with people in it he he has this really innovative stuff amongst this kind of uh, tedium of wreckage. In the case of Transformers 3, like that building scene where they jump into the building and they're constantly sliding down out of the building, like, that was brilliantly done. Like, and that almost woke me up. Like, for a while, it was like all this sort of destruction again. It's like, oh, here we go. And then that happened. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like, oh, shit. This is really good. And then it's back to the... And then there's other scenes where Optimus Prime sort of runs in and tears the guts out of one other thing. And that was... And, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't see a change myself in terms of his action directing. I just... I, I feel like he's kind of gone on as he started in that regard. Um, and it's funny because Transformers 2 was a film that I was constantly told of. It was, you know, completely, you know, epileptic cutting and incoherent. Like... I don't know if watching it on a television actually helps it, but I found it actually that there are a lot of kind of there weren't as there weren't weren't as many cuts as I thought. There are a lot of scenes that actually followed character uh, followed Transformers leaping around various things to something else and taking out various people. And yeah, um, there, there seemed to be less. Uh, there seemed to be a bit more coherence than I thought. I still think he's spatially fuzzy on his action. But, yeah, I guess it's just the volume of it that really bothers me. I've always felt that the real problem with Transformers for a lot of people is the fact that if you look at Bay's direction and you look at how he deals with actors, he always picks actors who are incredibly good at relying on their own charisma rather than acting. Yeah. You know, you've got Bruce Willis, you've got Ben Affleck, you've got Will Smith, you've got Martin Lawrence. These are not actors who are known for their range. They're, they're, they're celebrities, they're superstars, they're people who are just incredibly charismatic, who you naturally like. And now you put Michael Bay in charge of CG robots that have no charisma. And you and people wonder why there's these, this huge black hole in caring about these movies. And, and I, I've, I've long felt that the, the biggest problem with those films is just that you just don't care for the Transformers outside of knowing which ones are the good guys and which ones are the bad guys. And where most people get lost are in those weird chaotic scenes where you can't tell which one's the good guy and which one's the bad guy and you don't know who you're rooting for. It's also, I think, the ridiculous over-design of the Transformers themselves as well, like so many – but clunky moving parts and and it's gray on gray and it all looks the same and particularly by the time we get to the last one the autobots are painted so at least you can discern them but the uh, decepticons aren't the decepticons shockwave and soundwave and and megatron they're all the same shade of gray so it's like you, half the time you don't know who the hell's getting beat up but can i share you a theory 
I I thought of after after watching all three Transformers movies within like a forty eight hour period. It suddenly hit me what the Transformers films are, and as I thought of it, I, I then thought, "Oh, have I heard someone else say this?" God, I hope not. But but this is my thing: the Transformers films are Twilight for boys. Yeah, okay. yeah. They're this. No, they, they have a very specific demographic, which is thirteen to seventeen-year-old boys. Because the thing that's always troubled me about a lot of Bay's films is his incredibly crass, kind of smug fraternity jerk sense of humour. Um, like, really inappropriate, you know, sort of sledgehammer sex jokes and objectification of women and all this sort of stuff. And those elements were in the Transformers movies. Like, we see a giant robot on the moon being discovered by astronauts, and the next one we see is a girl's ass going upstairs. And I'm kind of like, who does this? <laughs> Michael Bay does this. The Transformers thing is all this teenage boy fantasy. It's, it's uh, like Shia LaBeouf is, like, like, is a fairly sort of average sort of, you know, look kind of guy in terms of, you know, he's skinny and he's kind of, you know, he's not a super hunk or anything like that. And, he's, and his characters are kind of, you know, working class and a bit of a nerd and all this sort of thing. But he gets... He get as you said before, Chris. He gets to sleep with the hottest women in the world. He gets to drive the hottest cars. He gets to ba- make friends with giant talking robots laden with cannons, and yet he gets to be the linchpin in saving the world with them. And and you also get the sense that he's like a normal kid with normal problems. From uh, there's a line of dialogue, I believe, in which he says, "I'm a normal kid with normal problems." <laughs> also get the sense of Michael Bay putting himself in that character by the third film because the, the entire first act of Transformers 3 is Sam Wickwicky going around going do you know who I am? Don't, <laughs> you, know, you, need to, you need to move aside. Don't you know who I am? I'm Sam Wickwicky. I saved the goddamn planet twice. You're gonna cut me a little fucking slack. And, 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 and I'm and I feel like that's actually, you know, probably some of Bay kind of leading in. Like, yeah. you know, what do you mean I can't get a table? I don't like <laughs> Bay. This is, this is that, that, that film that you know isn't particularly good, but that you love based upon these certain, you know, things that just remind you of a certain era of your life. And that's exactly why I connect with the Transformers films. I don't think the Transformers films are great cinema. I think they make me feel like a 13-year-old kid again and that I get to giggle while I watch robots tear each other apart. And uh, and I certainly wouldn't ever pull it out when I, when I want to watch a great film. But there's times where I want to kick back, throw back a couple beers and, and just watch some carnage. And that's why I have the Transformers films on Blu-ray. Fair enough. Uh, look, I, I do feel that we would need another half an hour to talk about like a lot of other Bayisms, like his approach to humour, his possible misogyny on screen, his um, why, why every African American character from uh, from the first Bad Boys through to Transformers Two just their dialogue seems to be it consists of screeching and screaming at one another and his. Inconsistent approach to depicting different races on the screen, he said very diplomatically. There's kind of a lot of that in there. But there's, I mean, he is, I, I, I think you're right, he is totally uh, a legitimate filmmaker to talk about because there is so much to get into. Yeah, well, I mean, his personality is in every frame of those movies. Mm. I mean, you get a very good sense of who Michael Bay is just by watching his films, by seeing what he fetishizes. Uh, he's an auteur, there's no doubt. 
And so that's that's what I've always found really fascinating. It, it was funny, you know, when you sent me the email at first, I was like, well, of course, I'll talk about Tony Scott. I'm one of the world's biggest Tony Scott fans. <laughs> it's like, oh, they already covered him. <laughs> oh, well. Well, I could talk about this guy or this guy or this guy that they haven't talked about. It's like, but why haven't you guys covered Bay yet? That's what I was talking about. Well, on that note, Chris, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Austin, Texas. Well, Thanks, guys, sir. seriously, thank you for having me. You got, I'm your first international guest, but this is my first international podcast, too. So there you go. We got to de-virginize each other. <laughs> <laughs> Always fun. Always fun. And we're looking forward to Sinister. Cannot wait. Oh, thanks so much. It's, uh, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys think of it. Looks creepy as hell. Can't wait to see it. And we'll see the rest of you next month. <laughs> <laughs>